Hungary's Viktor Orban, the originator of the notion of illiberal democracy, has now been re-elected for four more years as Prime Minister of Hungary. This is on top of the 12 years that have preceded this election and a previous stint as Prime Minister. This time he won with a supermajority that allows his party to revise the constitution unilaterally. How did he do it? What can we expect from the ruler whom many regard as the greatest threat to democracy in Eastern Europe? other than Russia. What will the EU do? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today David Jancic, who is Associate Professor in the School of Public Affairs at San Diego State University. He received his PhD in sociology from the Graduate Center in 2013, and he was, in fact, my student, and I can't believe it's almost 10 years that he's been gone. His fields of interest include corruption and informal practices in Central and Eastern Europe, and more specifically in his native Hungary. His current research agenda focuses on corruption in border law enforcement agencies. He frequently consults with international organizations and NGOs such as the United Nations, the European Commission, and the U4 Anti-Corruption Resource Center. He's also a member of the board of Transparency International Hungary. Thank you for being with us today, David Jancic. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you with us. All right. So Viktor Orban has been elected again. I mean, I said it was on top of 12 years, but that's just only in the immediate past. He was once prime minister earlier than that. But he seems to have, you know, in any case, uh, once again, cemented his hold on power. I mean, can you explain what happened in the election last weekend? So what happened, as you mentioned, was a landslide victory for Orban and his party Fidesz. So it's the fourth, fourth consecutive term. Uh, and it's very interesting because most pools and surveys predicted a much closer competition, uh, but they were wrong. Uh, so Fidesz even increased its ballots with 100,000 votes compared to the 2018 election. So as you mentioned, the party won a super majority in the single chamber parliament, which allows them to change the constitution. And the defeat was devastating for the oppositions, especially because the expectations were very high this time on the on the opposition side. So how can we explain this uh, huge victory? Of course, there is no one big uh, factor explaining the victory. I believe there are multiple reasons. This time, uh, six opposition parties have joined uh, forces uh, as they call the United Opposition. And the prime minister candidate uh, on the opposition side was a relatively new face. Uh, his name is Peter Markizai. Uh, and for a moment last year, it even seemed that he could be a real challenger of Orban. And he's a, he's a kind of interesting figure. He's a conservative, uh, proudly Christian person, father of seven children. He's not from Budapest, the capital. He's from an ag agrarian town, southeast Hungary. But he's also a Canadian citizen. And the most, the most important uh, part of his story that he speaks the language of everyday people. Uh, he didn't have any political party behind him. So he's basically a, a, 
a political entrepreneur. In some way, he also fits the, the anti-establishment, anti-elite zeitgeist we have seen in many countries. So the, the opposition's idea was that uh, the traditionally elitist liberal left is not strong enough to, to defeat Orban. But with Marcus Zai, uh, uh, they could attract conservative people, uh, they could attract ordinary uh, Hungarians disillusioned with Fidesz. But it didn't work. Uh, there were se several problems with the opposition uh, coalition. There were internal conflicts. Uh, but I think the main reason for this huge Fidesz victory was, was rather uh, Mr. Orban himself and the whole empire he has built over the last 12 years. Very important to understand that Orban needs huge electoral victories because they provide the necessary legitimacy for his autocratic regime. So he can show, look, Hungarian people wanted this. I'm not a dictator who obtains control by force. And because this time Marcus Zai seemed to be a real challenger, Fidesz deployed all available troops uh, in the campaign. First of all, uh, it was an unprecedented uh, campaign spending. So money was allocated to almost every social group. It included pension supplements, tax benefits for families, The government nationally froze the gas price, so people didn't feel the full burden of the inflation. But, but actually, Fidesz was already in a good position because the pre-COVID period was especially prosperous for, for Hungarians. Um, the economy was booming. So thanks to this increasing living standards, rising wages, higher consumption, many people already supported Orban. Fidesz also spent about eight times more on propaganda, such as Facebook ads, or billboards, than the opposition parties together. The supposedly independent state media uh, also communicated only Fidesz propaganda. And Orban had a very effective communication regarding the war in Ukraine. And then uh, there was the whole institutional system, shaped by Orban to serve Orban. For example, uh, they have created an election system that benefits only Fidesz. So let me just mention two examples. They redesigned election district boundaries. So this kind of gerrymandering you can see, I mean, it's familiar from the US. It could boost Fidesz's share of seats by 10 percentage points. Another one, ethnic Hungarians living in neighboring countries such as Romania or Serbia can vote by mail, which is very easy. So 90-95% of them are Fidesz supporters. By contrast, Hungarians res residing abroad with Hungarian address, for example, you know, people working or studying in Western Europe or in the US, also they are typically very critical of Orban, they had to go to a Hungarian embassy or consulate to vote. In many places, it's a long trip. So in the US, there are only just a few Hungarian consulates. So you have to fly. Right. So, so let me interrupt if I could. Um, I mean... It's a kind of remarkable story that you've just described. I mean, it seems practically, you know, in undefeatable. I mean, he's got everything covered. He's got the media. I mean, I heard something yesterday that a speech that, that the opposition had had over the course of three years or something, five minutes of coverage in the, in the, in the official media, I mean, the state run media and a speech he had given in the last week or so was repeated nine times in 24 hours or something like that. It just sounded, you know, impossible to believe. I mean, Orwellian, if you like. 
and uh, and you know the access to funds that he can distribute dole out you know in the interest of uh, currying favor with the populace. I mean, at the same time, you know, you describe a situation which, the, at least for the last few years, the economy has been doing well. So, you know, it may be authoritarianism, but it sounds pretty comfortable, and it sounds relatively, you know, like the people who are opposed to it are kind of misfits. Like, what's wrong with them? Why don't they get on board, right? So, but in any case, it sounds like a regime that, you know, as you say, does indeed probably enjoy a lot of legitimacy uh, from the population. And while there may be lots of things you can't get away with as a, you know, as a person, a thinker, a writer, a critic, a protester, you know, most people probably are going to be relatively happy with this situation. That portends, you know, who knows? Uh, he stays in power as far as the eye can see. Yeah, I, I have to mention just one more factor, uh, because yes, you are right. Uh, many people are very comfortable in the system. Very, They are very happy. And this is also part of his his long, you know, de- decade-long uh, project, you know, this ambitious social engineering project. So they created a highly centralized state capture system in which public and private resources are allocated to particularistic actors, to special you know, social groups. And this structure is able to maintain social order, but in a way of forced social integration. So there are patron client networks everywhere. And if you are in this network, you have abs- almost unlimited resources. Uh, you can win public procurements for your company. Uh, you can get government contracts. You 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 can get a well-paid job, uh, positions in cultural in the cultural field or sports sports club. But you must be loyal to Orban. If you are outside of this network, you are basically enemy. So you won't have access to any resource. So there is no neutral position in this world. It's a highly polarized society in a constant civil war. Uh, but I mean, you can benefit if you you just have to be loyal. So you can benefit from the system. And these clientele networks were also mobilized during these elections. Um, There are anecdotes. For example, employers threatened their employees if they don't vote for the Fidesz, they will get fired. Uh, So you can see this almost everywhere, every spheres of Hungarian society, that there are these, you know, dependency relations uh, you can get resources, but only if you are loyal to 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 the power. So I believe these are the main reasons for this huge Fidesz victory. Right. So, but your work is more specifically on corruption, and indeed on corruption in Hungary. So I want to ask you a little bit about you know what does that look like? What does it mean? How does it? you know, sort of help help us describe the situation that you've just been outlining in such detail? I mean, what does corruption mean in contemporary Hungary? Right. I mean, uh, there are different types of corruption, different forms of corruption. There is petty corruption. There is corruption related to, to your family, you know, just helping family members, nepotism, um, and things like that. What we see in Hungary is a is a very different type. It's a it's a top-down centralized corruption, which means state capture. So the state, the the, the political elite, captured uh, almost 
every institution in the country, uh, political institutions. Uh, they, they even control a huge chunk of the private sector economy. And, uh, and at the top of this is Viktor Orban. So he's the, he's the godfather. Uh, and uh, he put loyal people uh, in, uh, in every organization. And they use this huge machine to channel resources to, you know, first to, to oligarchs. Uh, but those oligarchs are controlled by Orban. They are not, they are not independent. Uh, it's very similar to the Russian system where Putin basically controls the oligarchs. So they create huge wealth, right? They restructure uh, the Hungarian economic elite. But they also use these resources to feed those uh, patron-client networks at lower levels, you know, local government levels, municipal levels. So, I mean, it's a very, in, in some way, it's a very smart system you can control a whole society and you can channel resources uh, where they are needed. To what extent, I mean, you just compared it to what's going on in Russia. I mean, to what extent is the corruption you're describing a post-Soviet phenomenon? To what extent is it you know, characteristic of all countries in the former Soviet bloc? I think we saw the typical post-Soviet type of corruption right after the collapse of the system. So I'm talking about the 1990s. That was the time when, you know, state institutions were weak. You know, it was a new democracy. So it was basically uh, the law enforcement agencies were weak. So it was basically a huge, huge employment, unemployment. So ordinary people try to try to survive. And that's why we had this huge, you know, post-socialist type of corruption when you, you had to bribe uh, almost everybody, uh, policemen on the street, uh, um, low-level, street-level bureaucrats if, if you needed uh, a permission or something like that. So it was really widespread, uh, but it was also a kind of survival tool. But that kind of corruption disappeared uh, because, as, at least in Hungary, because the state uh, with Orban uh, started to control corruption as well, so there there is there is minimal, middle or or low level corruption right now in Hungary. Uh, this is just so they basically monopolized corruption. This is just this top level grand state corruption. I see. All right. So speaking of corruption, I mean, one of the things that's been suggested uh, since the uh, invasion of Ukraine by the Russians is that, you know, politicians west of Russia would, who, who had, you know, aligned themselves with uh, Putin, uh, would suffer electorally. Um, and so this is something that, you know, is going to get thrown around in the second round of the French elections, for example, with regard to Marine Le Pen. But, uh, you know, Orban was best friends with Putin until shortly before the election or before the invasion, at least as far as I knew. And yet this doesn't seem to have hurt him. How did he manage to, you know, finesse that relationship? Or, or what, you know, what do Hungarian people think about the war, maybe is part of the question. Right. So he used the war in Ukraine very successfully in his communication uh, during this election. So it was a huge uh, success domestically, but I believe that there must be geo geopolitical prices for that, as you mentioned. 
So first of all, Orban understands Hungary, the Hungarian culture very well. And the Ukrainian war happened just right before the election. And he quickly reacted. Uh, and his message was like this. Stay away from the conflict because cheap gas from Russia and the peace are more important than solidarity with Ukraine, who, by the way, are is harassing Hungarian minorities. The opposition strategy on the war was very different. So they followed the, the West in this case. So for them, it was like a choice between East and West, right? But for Orban, it was the choice between the war and peace. And it perfectly fits Orban's rhetoric. Because in this narrative, uh, the external world is always dangerous. There, there are wars outside. There are strange people. There are gay people, transgender people, migrants, refugees, Muslims, barbarians. And all of this is currently outside of the country, but the opposition wants to bring them in. So the only stable point in this chaos is Viktor Orban. He can create... He can maintain order. Uh, he can block these evil external forces at the border of Hungary. And a few days before the election, he started to use even a stronger, a stronger language. So it was this apocalyptic vision that the opposition wants to send our children to a war, a war we have nothing to do with. They're gonna, they will bring blood in Hungary. Uh, so he won this communication battle because many people chose safety over supporting the West and Ukraine. But as you mentioned, uh, internationally, it's, a, it's not a comfortable standpoint, right? So he's, uh, Orban is getting more and more isolated internationally. And there are signs of this. So, for example, the V4 countries, the Visegrad group, Czech Republic, uh, Poland, Slovakia, and Hungary, they already started to make a distance. So Budapest had to cancel a V4 meeting after Poland and uh, the Czech Republic pulled out because of Hungary's stance on the war. And, uh, and this breakup with Poland is especially painful for Orban uh, because Poland was the biggest ally in his fight against the West. So for short term, the international costs are, are big for him. But who knows what's, what's next? I mean, it may change in the future. So I obviously wanted to ask you about the relationship with Europe, with the European Union. And, you know, Poland and Hungary have been you know, the problem children uh, of the EU now for some time. And uh, so it's interesting that there may be, you know, growing isolation even from the Poles. So I want to ask you about that, but I also want to get back to make sure we talk about, you know, the impact of the war beyond the political or the immediately political. Uh, I mean, people don't seem to mention very often that Hungary shares a border with Ukraine. I mean, not a very long one, but it's one of the borders. So, so there are obviously refugee questions to ask. So, um, you know, perhaps you could just speak a little bit to the EU issue, and then we'll get back to you know the impact of the war on Hungary. Okay. Well, the relationship between Hungary and the EU is is a kind of strange, interesting relationship, because uh, for many years the EU seemed to be very reluctant to sanction Hungary for its illiberal turn. It already had some tools to stop decentralized grand corruption, uh, but those tools were minimally used. And and as as I mentioned, corruption is a is 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 one of the most important elements of Orban system. In a seven-year EU budget period, we are talking about sixty thousand projects in Hungary, fully or partially financed by the European Union. 
So it means tens of billions of euros. And a huge part of this money disappears in the pockets of Orban's family, Orban's friends. So these people are, are the wealthiest Hungarians right now. So again, EU was reluctant, but something has changed because after the election, the European Commission announced that it would trigger a powerful new mechanism to cut funding to Hungary over rule of law breaches. This is a new thing. Uh, and Hungary will be the first country to face these new sanctions. And it's, it's, not, it's not just because of corruption, uh, because Orban and his cabal also control the whole institutional system, the judiciary, uh, prosecutor agencies, state media, private media, the whole education system, including universities, cultural institutions, sports clubs, and other supposedly independent institutions. So it's basically, as I mentioned, it's it's a total state capture. And it seems that, that the EU is ready to move forward, but it's going to be a long bureaucratic process. So eventually 55% of EU countries must approve these sanctions. So I'm afraid uh, it may end up as a typical EU horse trade, you know, between countries and it will be watered down. But the biggest problems, I think that the EU underestimated Orban for many years. So Hungary was just one of those small post-socialist countries. The EU didn't care too much about the illiberal tendencies because it was an insignificant country. And uh, Orban handled the 2015 migration crisis uh, with heavy hands. The Hungarian government abused refugees. Uh, it made practically impossible for asylum seekers to submit their claims. So the government totally neglected international human rights law. But that was intentional. Uh, so that was Orban's big moment. He wanted to play the role of the defender of the white Christian European culture. And it worked very well because many European people uh, felt the same way. So Orban used this migration crisis in 2015 to build his own brand. And he actually stabbed on the stage of world politics. So he's, he's not anymore just a prime minister of a small country. He's a name. There is urbanism, right? So he's a brand. He's on covers of international magazines. Uh, he's, he's the challenger of contemporary West from inside. And he started this before Trump. Thanks to Tucker Carlson, now Orban is the reference point for Trump supporters in the U.S., so when compared to the size of the country, Orban's influence is huge. And this is unprecedented. So I think it's too late for Europe to stop him. Well, that's not encouraging, especially given the stranglehold he seems to have on the prime minister's office. So it sounds like he's not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, I mean, I guess we could explore that further, but you've explained it in fairly considerable detail. So maybe, you know, we should spend a little time talking about, you know, the impact of the war and the refugee situation, because as I said, you know, very few people really mention Hungary as part of the landscape, uh, the near abroad, I suppose, of, of Ukraine. Uh, much of the attention is focused on Poland, uh, Slovakia, perhaps, but I don't really hear Hungary mentioned very much. So what is the refugee situation like? And what are you know the relations between the countries and how does that all look? All right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of refugees arrived in Hungary as well. And I think the, 
the government uh, is much more friendly to them than it was to the you know refugees uh, from the Middle East and Africa in in 2015. But still, uh, uh, a lot of civil society uh, organizations had to step in, uh, especially during the first days, uh, to help you know this huge crowd uh, at the train stations. And uh, I believe uh, most of them uh, didn't want to stay in Hungary, so they moved forward to you know to Western countries, probably Germany and and uh, Austria, Germany, or or maybe more uh, Northern European countries. But the Hungarian society is totally divided on this issue, and this is a political divide. So uh, so the urban uh, liberal middle class. Uh, they are they are totally pro West on this issue, so they support uh, the NATO Western countries. Uh, they are totally against Putin. The other side, the Orban side, <clears throat> they are more cautious. So Orban uh, stopped openly supporting Putin, which was the case before the war. But still, uh, there is a there is this narrative I already mentioned that you know we have to get away from this war. We don't we we shouldn't be involved. The West wants us to get involved in the, in this war, and we should avoid it because it's more important to be safe here in Hungary. So that's the typical sentiment. Well, so this raises the question, which is you know uh, on the table for all all the other countries that in, in the neighborhood. Uh, such as Poland in particular, uh, what if, you know, there is some kind of attack or, you know, mistake, a missile falls on some town in the east of Hungary and suddenly, you know, maybe Hungary is in the war and right. NATO follows. I mean, so how how does that, uh, are people worried about that? I mean, again, we, one doesn't, Orban takes up so much, of the air in the room, I guess that that there's no room left to talk about how the Hungarians, you know, may be thinking about the fear, the worry about attack and that sort of thing. Well, it's a, it's a it's a hard question. So Orban is using this, you know, double speech. So he he supports, you know, uh, the Western sanctions against Russia, but he he's also not when you when you listen to the uh, official state media, there is no clear. There's no clear statement against Putin or Russia. Or sometimes it's even the Russian propaganda, soft version of Russian propaganda, right? So that it the whole thing was, you know, designed by the US. So Ukraine is, is just the puppet of, of the, you know, grand uh, United States politics. Sometimes you can hear voices like that in, in the state uh, media, Hungary. So I don't know. I mean, Orban is a, is a, is a great survivor this strategy uh, worked very well domestically. I don't know how he's going to handle this uh, this case internationally, but I'm sure he has some ideas about that. I'm sure he does as well. Um, but I wonder, uh, you know, you described his sort of growing isolation in the in the neighborhood, I suppose, of Eastern Europe or Europe generally, and at the same time, this kind of weird influence on the far right in uh, in the United States, at least. I don't know about other far right movements, but um, you know what? Uh, so th- there is this election coming up in France. I mean, 
I, I don't have a clear sense of how tight Marine Le Pen, for example, uh, it might be with Orban, but my guess is it's probably fairly cozy or has been fairly cozy. You know, what kind of effect is his growing isolation going to have on somebody like Marine Le Pen, who seems to be doing better, as you probably know, in the polls uh, against Emmanuel Macron than uh, people had expected or than she had done the last time around? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, again, I think it, I mean, Orban was, uh, was aware of the price, you know, using this rhetoric domestically. So he, he knew that he's going to pay the price internationally. That's for sure. Um, but I think the international environment around Hungary is very dynamic right now. So we don't know what's going to happen. It's um, it it may make him significantly weaker or even stronger. Uh, you know, the war, uh, a possible recession, next elections in the U.S. or in other countries. You know, right now uh, in France, or the role of NATO in European uh, in terms of European security. So who knows? I mean, just think about a possible next Trump presidency. That would create a powerful ally or Orban for Orban again, right? But I, I mean, unfortunately, he's an international brand now. So he's, uh, he's one of the most resilient of these new populist leaders. When you see many of them uh, were defeated after one or two terms, but Orban is stronger than ever. Trump is down. Netanyahu disappeared. But Orban is still there, so he's, uh, I mean, also he's not, he's different from Erdogan or Putin because he is inside the European Union. So he's in a much better position. Um, hard questions, but uh, what I see right now is that he's very strong uh, and he's going to stay for, uh, he's young, he's 58. He will stay in this position for years, probably decades, 15 more years, 20 more years. And he built an empire uh It's a kind of uh, indestructible death star in in Hungary. So he's a heavyweight boxer in the ring and there is no contender right now. It's going to be extremely difficult to to defeat him in future elections. That's a great uh, image. However, unfortunate, the reality that it describes this uh, indestructible death star, I think was the phrase. So before you go, I mean, I think that would have been a good place to wrap up, but there is one other question I thought I wanted to ask you, you know, since we're academics, maybe this is of greater interest to us than it might be to a non-academic listener. But, uh, you know, what was the significance of the whole, you know, uh, sort of expulsion of the Central European University? I mean, expulsion is not exactly the right word. I mean, they left on their own account, but Orban made it very difficult for them to stay, as best I could tell. So now it's in Vienna, maybe everybody's happier in Vienna. Probably in certain respects they are, but of course it undermines, you know, the founding donors' uh, intentions with the whole thing. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that story and, you know, what's been the result. Well, I mean, who knows the, 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 the real truth in this story, but it is definitely related to the to the government's stop stop Soros campaign, which they started during this uh, 2015 uh, refugee crisis. So the the narrative was like that that there are these you know Western NGOs 
in the country, including uh, Open Society Foundation, created by George Soros, <clears throat> and also the the university, also founded by by George Soros, and these organizations are basically uh, foreign agents in con- in the country. So they are manipulating, you know, uh, media, and they they basically orchestrated this whole refugee crisis uh, to make Europe weaken. So that I think the attack against the university was part of this narrative, which is a kind of interesting thing because a lot of people believe that he may attack Open Society Foundation, he may attack some, you know, some international NGOs, but he is not going to touch the university, especially because this whole thing happened right before the university just opened a brand new uh, campus uh, in downtown Budapest. So they built a new, a, a super modern new building. Uh, so it was a sign that the university is safe. But, uh, you know, he improvises. So you never know what's what's his next move. Right, and he's a savvy operator. That's that's clear. Well, uh, on that not entirely encouraging note, uh, let me say that's it for today's episode. I want to thank David Jancic of San Diego State University for sharing his insights about developments in Hungary. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Juan Acevedo for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.